Greetings. It has recently come to my attention that while these intros, they have uh, good messages, the, the fact that I'm reading something can be heard through the way that I'm speaking. So I've written an intro for this episode, but I also have sort of left it open-ended. I sort of just stopped writing because one, I'm tired of writing and also want to just see how it feels to flow without the words right in front of me to read. So I'm going to uh, start by reading and try try to make it sound like I'm not reading and then uh, just flow from there. Perhaps you'll hear where that moment is. So, I've spoken with some really beautiful souls recently. And I've got a few conversations in the chamber that I'm very excited to share with you all. But I've decided to share this next conversation today because the feeling of this conversation is still fresh. And I wanted to edit and compose this introduction with that feeling still fresh in my body and in my mind. This conversation was not recorded in Philly. Last week, I took a trip to Colorado to visit my dear soul brother, Seth Feynman. The story of my relationship with Seth is really a significant part of my life. Nowadays, it seems like we're only together for a week at a time. And before this trip to Colorado, I hadn't seen Seth in over a year. But we do go way back. We met when we were 12 years old at a sleepaway camp in New Hampshire. We were campers together for four years, and we really sealed our connection during our last summer as campers when we were 14. After that summer, I did not return to camp, and Seth and I didn't even communicate at all for four years. Then, during my freshman year of college, I returned home during Thanksgiving break, and I was pretty devastated. I was struggling to make real solid friendship connections at school, and a very important relationship had come to a major transition point. So this is one reason why I say that my relationship with Seth has been so significant in my life. Within the first couple months of college, my high school girlfriend initiated a shift, a shift, a transition from romance to platonic friendship. And without going into too much detail, I'll just say that I was a wreck. And so I returned home during Thanksgiving and my mom and I really bonded because during that time, she just really held space for me in a beautiful way. She provided a lot of warmth and a lot of consolation. And 
I told her, what am I going to do this summer? I, I don't want to be in Albany. I need to do something different. And she had this amazing idea for me to apply to work as a counselor at the same summer camp that I attended as a camper four years earlier. And so, at this vulnerable time in my life, where I was dealing with a lot of suffering, but also growing and maturing, summer 2014, I think it was 2014, Seth and I reunite. Might have been 2013, doesn't matter. Seth and I reunited. Boom! Instant reunion, friendship, love, everything. And I remember one of the first days that we reunited, I asked Seth if he smoked herb because, of course, I'm 18 years old, 19 years old, and that was very new and exciting for me at that time. And his response was unexpected and cemented in my mind and it really formed a major shift in my consciousness he said he smokes sometimes but we don't need to smoke or take drugs we can get there through meditation I didn't really know what he meant by that I don't even know if he knew what he meant by that but I remember that it resonated very deeply. I just felt that, yes, this is true. And so I finished the summer, beautiful summer, amazing summer, so much bonding with Seth, um, really stepping into my, my role as a counselor and an educator, which I still am to this day. And I'm signing up for classes for the sophomore year of college. The first class I sign up for, Yoga and Tantric Mysticism. Professor Edward Godfrey. Beautiful, beautiful, brilliant man. And uh, actually, I hope to have him on the podcast someday, so remember that name. Um, and yeah, the wheels just kept turning. And I really began to investigate this claim that Seth had made. Um, now, I was still very much curious about psychedelics and altering my consciousness, and I did explore that realm um, a fair bit, but Seth's voice was, was in the back of my mind, and I remember on several occasions, while in an altered state of consciousness, I was having a, a, an internal dialogue, and the, the conversation would always seem to go something like this, wow. This is amazing. I am feeling so much love right now. I'm feeling so incredible, light and energetic. I, I want to feel like this all the time. How can I feel like this all the time without having to take these substances? And by having that internal dialogue, it kept bringing me back to what Seth had said. And it really paved the way for meditation to become this this very important part of my life. Um, so another very important part of my life and another aspect of this spiritual journey was how Seth influenced my connection with the natural world. 
we often spend our days off out in the woods hiking uh seth introduced this activity to me where you walk up to a tree and you just start talking to the tree and you don't stop talking you just keep talking and talking and talking and and it's a therapy session you just say whatever comes up and the tree of course just listens trees are, are amazing listeners and so he cultivated in me, uh, or you know, he awakened in me this, uh, or reawakened in me this uh, spiritual connection with the natural world. And he also sparked this activism passion. Uh, when I reunited with Seth, he had just returned from a year abroad in Israel. And for some of you, you might know, Israel. Uh, is pretty hyper aware of water because they don't have too much of it and so Seth comes back and he arrives at camp and he's telling he's telling me that he's not going to take showers as as a form of activism I believe and also um, I think it was for him to maintain this this uh, awareness and this honor he, by, by doing this he was honoring this struggle that many people on this planet endure, which is the struggle for clean water. Um, and so the journey just keeps deepening. For anyone who knows me fairly well, you might know that I am a bag washer. I, and my dish strainer, I've got plates and bowls and silverware and plastic bags. I wash plastic bags because I don't want to throw them out. I don't want them to end up in the ocean. So I take them and I just went to the grocery store today and filled uh, what was once a bag of cinnamon I now filled it with granola um, gotta be aware of that I wouldn't put granola in a bag that once had like broccoli or something May, uh, maybe I would but, but probably not curry I wouldn't put a bag that had curry spice now filling it with a bag of granola so things to be mindful of for anyone who wants to get into the world of uh, bag reusability but anyway um, another thing that happened sophomore year, by the way, I've stopped reading, I'm flowing now. Another thing that happened sophomore year, I went to this talk at my college, and the talk was about mountaintop removal, and it said that PNC Bank is the nation's number one financier of mountaintop removal. And I happened to have an account with PNC, so... I promptly went to the local bank uh, on campus after that meeting and I closed my account and and so I'm I'm feeling it I'm feeling this call to activism um, and I'm asking questions like all right this is great I'm doing this now I'm aware of what I'm eating I'm aware of what I'm using and consuming and where my money's going naturally what's gonna happen next okay how do I get the conversation going with other people so <clears throat> so uh, that's a journey in itself and that's one that Seth and I really explored together a lot is like you know how do we talk to folks about these things without pissing them off without seeming self-righteous um, at camp it was a struggle uh, you know, Seth learned through some strife that 
not showering while admirable for his cause was uh, an obstacle for him uh, uh, being an employee at this camp. It led to many difficult conversations with our employers, the directors of the camp, while they supported us, and I'm so thankful for their support. It was tough at times, you know. We were we were hypercritical. We were like, "Oh, we got to be recycling. We got to be composting. What's going on here?" Um, and they didn't take to that too kindly. They said, "There's a better way to go about this," and they kind of cultivated and, and nurtured a, a more respectful way of communicating about these things. Um, I'll never forget this one time. Seth was using his own spoon during a meat meal at camp. For anyone who knows, you gotta have separate silverware for meat and dairy. It's a meat meal. The director of the camp walks up to Seth and says, hey, you can't use that spoon. To be fair to the director, I think he was having a bad day. He was a great guy, is a great guy. He was having a rough day, and his he let his temper get the better of him. And he had a physical altercation with Seth where he tried to pry the spoon from Seth's hands. And Seth ended up running out of the dining hall and, and uh, broke down into tears outside um, and it was sad for me too you know like why why is this happening why are we trying to do something so that feels so right to us but it's not being received that way so Seth and I yeah we've been together at camp um, when I was at Standing Rock in North Dakota Seth came out there and uh, I was there for about three weeks. He, he spent the last five days there with me. And uh, that was huge for us to be there together. And then we, we traveled together for a little bit, went to Colorado. Um, that was the first time we were in Colorado together. Uh, we traveled back across the country, stopped in Chicago. We stopped in Chicago in the middle of winter. I think it was the day before Christmas. We met up with a friend of mine. But they didn't have room for us in the apartment. And uh, I don't know if it comes out in this interview. I can't remember. But Seth spent a long time sleeping outside. He loves sleeping outside. I think it does come up in this interview. And uh, so he got me into that too. I, I went through a long phase where I started sleeping outside. So wouldn't you know it, December 23rd, we get our sleeping bags. And we go sleep on this icy pier on Lake Michigan. And we wake up in the morning, sun's up, and uh, I get up a little before Seth, and then I'm looking around, and I see some figures moving towards us, and I say, hey, Seth, uh, the cops are coming. And Seth, of course, thought I was joking, but sure enough, the cops were coming. And uh, that was a, an interesting altercation, but a uh, great story to share. It, everything was fine. They just uh, thought, they didn't want us to, to be like, killing ourselves on the ice. They, they said that sometimes homeless folks will go out on the ice and take their lives that way. Um, yeah, we traveled back to my hometown and uh, just had a beautiful journey across the country. Um, so the story goes on, but uh, this most recent trip to Colorado was incredible. It was only we only had five days together, but uh, we we got out in the woods as we as we must, 
and we actually recorded a little bit of a conversation by the fire and I'm just going to like drip drop some clips from that conversation throughout this recording uh, try to find good places to drop them in um, we had a beautiful day out out in the mountain um, yeah I don't I don't really know what else to say about it um, we uh, the whole time I was thinking gosh I, I really want to get Seth on on the recording because the job that he does is amazing he, he works in wilderness therapy at uh, with an organization called Bamidbar which is Hebrew for uh, I, I think it's in the desert I hope that's right um, and the whole time went by and it wasn't until the very last hours of our time together we're driving to the airport and I'm like dang we didn't really get to record and Seth says well let's do it now so we got about an hour in the car and you'll have to forgive me the background noise of the car <clears throat> is audible throughout this recording but yeah it, it was a great conversation and you're, you're getting to see sort of a different side of me your host Harry Bow. Uh, up until this point I've had recordings with relatively new friends but this is a dear old friend of mine who I can just flow and flow with um, feel very comfortable with and uh, here it is Seth Feynman uh, recording in the car on the way to the airport in Colorado. Peace. Here we are with my my soul brother Seth Feynman. Morning. AKA Tsviadain. AKA Ponderosa. Groove Ponderosa. Groove Ponderosa. That's his trail name. Good memory. Good memory, yeah. Seth, Tzvi. Here we are, final hours of our time together in Colorado. It has been a journey. Sure has. Last we pressed the red button, together we were sitting by the fire. Wherever you are, remember, you're human and it's okay. After a beautiful day on high, the moon on high, putting our hands palm to land, and uh, we started getting into it, started figuring out what exactly it is you do day to day when you're on the job. You were describing it beautifully, and I was I was going in all sorts of rants and rambles, but I was excited by what you were saying, and I wanted to uh, I wanted to break it down and understand it. So, what, where are you heading right now? What are we doing right now? We're going to the airport right now. So that I can be a guest teacher 
at a different a different school, um, an expedition school in New Hampshire um, that runs semester programs in the winter time in a pretty um, pretty badass way. Um, everything is as authentic as it really gets. You know, like for setting up our tent, we're cutting boughs from trees. We're setting up a wall tent that was built by previous semesters. We're learning sustainable forestry practices and felling trees with axes and saws. And that's every night. Every single night we do that. And camp setup, which if you think in the summertime is pretty much just getting some firewood and setting up your tent, is a four-hour process. Um, and these students are just like, I need a break from um, from this whole traditional uh, education system after being lectured at. I need to do some real stuff right now. Um, and they're hardy. There's, and there's, in this semester, there's eight girls and four boys, which is a cool ratio. So this is the, the job you used to hold. Yes. And you've transitioned since then. Um, what, what were the forces that propelled you to leave Kroka and start working uh, in a different wilderness position? So the thing about Kroka is is that it is not considered salary work exactly, whereas when working now, Mead Bar is salary work. So in terms of pay, there's definitely a difference there. Um, and that and that sort of creates differences in what you're allowed to, like how much time off you can realistically have while still making enough money to support yourself. And so where I was working before was just like, I was working six days on basically and one day off. And during that day off, there's sometimes things I had to do for work. And so um, the distance between work and personal life was way too thin. And it, it's definitely started having an impact on my emotional well-being. And now you, you work typically seven days on, seven days off? Uh, yeah, it's more like eight days on and six days off because it's Wednesday to Wednesday. And I have to get there like at 9 a.m. and I leave there at like 4 p.m. the following time. So it's like, it's more like, yeah, I guess it's, it's almost, you can call it 7 and 7. It kind of equals out. What kind of energetic shift have you experienced moving from New Hampshire to Colorado? A lot more laid back. Really? A lot less intense. Um, Is that the culture out here or the job you, you now work? Um, yeah, it's hard for me to put my hand on the entire culture, uh, but I definitely know it's the culture of our work. And so the place you work now, Bamid Bar, uh -huh. it's, it's okay, eight days on, six days off. Yep. The students that you're working with, though, even when you leave, they're still there, right? Yeah, they don't get an off time. And how long is their time with Bamid Bar? Um, average stay is going to be eight to twelve weeks. Okay. And if they leave before eight weeks, they there's really very little chance they're actually graduating and they're more just leaving because we're not forced them to be there so they can leave whenever they want if they decide they're done or their parents decide they're done or their parents decide we don't have enough funds to continue sending them there then they're done because so they might not graduate which is not ideal it is quite an expensive program right yeah but what you I, I believe you feel that it's worth it you say 
um, for what's being provided for these students? Yeah, we're giving them round-the-clock support. They wake up at 3 a.m. and they're cold. I'm right there. I'm gonna I'm gonna help them get tucked in. You know, if if uh, during the day they are struggling to cook a meal, I'm right there. I'm gonna help them. If they are having an emotional breakdown, a panic attack, if they're threatening another student, I'm right there. So like we're there all the time. There's no um, this is not like going to a therapist sitting in a leather chair. This is living with people who are caring for you and then seeing a therapist once or twice a week. So in that way I guess it's similar with the therapist, but the, the intensity is far different. The therapist comes out in the bush with you? Yeah, and he sleeps out overnight with us. And, and do the students have like private sessions with him or her? Yeah, they have private sessions with him and then there's a group session as well. So, remind us the three S's that you, you spoke to us about before. Safety, structure, and supervision. Okay, safety, structure, and supervision. The, I'm curious about the structure. What, what, is, what is the day-to-day? So wake up to a song, then is that is that is that your own uh, addition to the structure? Or uh, is yes, that actually part yes, of the curriculum. It is. The song is an, is an addition. Can we um, hear it? Morning light coming through my window, cross my pillow, sweet and bright. Wake up in the morning. Give thanks and laugh again Cause I have the strength to rise How did the students receive that song in the morning? Um, there have been times we didn't sing the song because students got really upset by it. <laughs> They're like, happy bunny, get the F away. <laughs> um, and then once they're awake, the first thing that we try to do is to check their feet. We check their feet three times a day. Um, to make sure that they don't have any blisters or frostbite or really wet socks because in the winter or in the summer wet socks or wet feet can lead to a really really bad situation and feet are just like numero uno on the the bush survival kind of list because if you don't have your hands you can still move around just fine but if you don't have your feet you're on your butt and you're that's it you know yeah um, so we check their feet. In the winter, you're checking for frostbite or cuts? Frostbite, blisters, cuts, and wet socks. Wet socks in the wintertime can be a real big issue, you know? Now, or really smelly socks. I'm going to keep pausing you because I'm curious about these things. But okay. when you look at their feet and when you are, yeah, basically like filling this role of a caregiver, um, do they resent it at all? Like, oh, I know how to take care of myself. You don't need to do this. With foot checks, no. None of them are like, I do this myself. Because none of them ever check their feet on their own. I don't think it's not that common. Um, let's see, where's an area that they do resent it? I think when we're telling them to hydrate or telling them that they need to eat a meal. That's the time they feel like, I know my body, you don't know me. Okay. okay. The fact of the matter is, if you're not, if 
you're skipping a meal, you're not taking the best care of yourself. One meal, okay. Like, two meals in a row, yeah, it's not it's not ideal for the kind of living that you're doing out there at high elevation. And drinking, you need at least three liters, you know? Um, okay, so, foot check. Um, and then they get out of bed, and this particular group has been really good about getting out of bed quickly. Um, which is nice, because sometimes they'll just sort of hang in bed, and like, we're not going to grab them and pull them out of bed. So long as they're in bed, we can try to encourage them to get out, but we're not going to put more out than they're putting than they're putting out. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and that's become a rule of, of my teaching team. Um, that's really been helpful for us in not getting burnt out. Because before, they would be like, really not wanting to do something, we'd just be pushing and pushing and pushing, and they would just continue to, to not do anything, and it was just like, it was just like you were dumping your energy into a sponge that just had unlimited ability to absorb. So, that, that must be a fine line to, to find, like, knowing how much to encourage and push these students, and how much to just lay, lay back. Yeah, but Harry, it's something that you do every day. It's all just like social awareness and um, and like understanding of of social cues. If you don't get those things, you're not going to be able to excel in this job. So you're saying have you have you developed an intuition in knowing when your when your positive reinforcement is is being heard or when it's just falling on deaf ears? Yeah, and the more that I do it, the better of a sense that I get for like for fine tuning it. You know, uh-huh. I think like at the beginning, I was kind of using a chainsaw to to get to this this piece of wood, and, and that, then I was using a large axe, and now I'm using more of like a small axe. I'm not quite, maybe I'm using a, a, a knife, but I'm definitely not using sandpaper quite yet. Okay, bringing us some metaphors. Mm-hmm. So, um, so what's next? Um. Next for me is transitioning from being an assistant guide to a lead guide, which is something that I'm um, sort of figuring out on my off time so that I can start as soon as I come back to work. And that's just like doing some policies and procedures, um, like research work and um, giving proof of the amount of time I've spent in the field, that sort of thing. That you would be doing like paperwork at that time? Um, yeah, a little bit of paperwork. Okay. Well, no, to be when a lead guide will do more paperwork in the field, but not like office work. Okay. Well, what what are the key moments though of the student's day? Right. Back to that. Um, and so then we do something called Shmirat Hanefesh, which is Hebrew for um, protecting or guarding the soul. And we'll all sit around the fire and um, either do something physical like stretching. Or we'll do something more like soulful, like meditating. And meditating is pretty, pretty much like the standard for what we do. Um, and then we'll go off and take 15 minutes for ourselves. For a lot of them, that can be a really big de-escalation time if they're in the morning, um, struggling with, with like getting out of bed, or just feeling angry or frustrated in general. Um, that 15 minutes alone does a lot for them. And they don't get a lot of alone time because we have to have eyes on at all times. Um, and that's a hard thing in the program because they don't feel trusted. 
trust. I don't know the solution to that, but you give trust and then you create trust. That's what I believe. So if you if you tell like what you tell someone is what they're going to what they're going to to believe about themselves. And so if we send the message to them of you need to be an eyesight because I can't totally trust you, there's something there's some like level that they're not gonna be able to live up to. And at the same time, safety is our number one priority. Like that's just that's the way it is. It's a bitter truth. Yeah. And safety is definitely a, a subjective. So Moodbar um, has standards on safety, and other places have different ones. Now, are, are you are the students that you have out in the field with you? Is there just a huge, wide spectrum of uh, level of capability? Um, how about I finish the schedule first so we don't lose that? Bring it on. Go. Keep yeah. it going. Um, so then we have breakfast, and all meals are cooked over the fire, unless there's a fire ban, and they're cooked in individual one and a half liter pots. So. Um, each of them sort of has to maintain their own fire within the main fire to make sure that they have um, enough coals to get water boiling on and to cook oatmeal or rice or whatever whatever you want. Um, and we're cooking all raw grains for the most part. Like, we don't cook raw beans. We have um, instant beans. Um, but it's all raw ingredients. We're not opening backpackers' pantries and dumping in chicken pad thai or anything like that. Um, and then after that, we have... Is there a lot of trash with that? With what? With the, the foods that you use? The trash... The trash is a little bit of an eye of the beholder because it's all um, reusable plastic bags. And honestly, I could do a better job taking those home because I end up really wanting them when I'm not working. Um, they're just... They're not Ziploc bags, but they're just they're plastic bags. Um, so there isn't generally too much waste, and we really try to encourage them and really try to push them to take just the right amount of food because they often want to take a lot more. And that's a control thing, you know? They don't have their option to wear whatever they want. They're wearing clothing that the Mibar has issued them, literally issued them. Um, so there's a lack of, like, personality in that way, and so and a lack of control, and they want control. They want to feel like they have some, 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 some clout. Yeah. Um, and so one of the ways they like to do that is by hoarding food. That's a really common. Um, so they'll either get the normal amount of pack out or they'll like try to slip extra food, which is fairly difficult with the way we're doing it now. We really have eyes on when they're packing out. Um, but they'll put food in their pockets or they'll move food so that they can have double the trail mix, which doesn't make sense. Like, if you get your trail mix from last week, what what is going to say that you're going to eat any of the new one? And you're just carrying around a lot of extra weight. It's so not just, a logical thing. I want to clarify something. Yeah. <clears throat> when you say they pack out, is yeah. there some kind of base camp that you return to every week nice. or something? Thank you, for, thank you for that. So, yeah, on from Thursday to Sunday, we are at base camp. And, excuse me. At base camp, we're living in a canvas wall tent, either sleeping on cots or sleeping on the floor, um, with a wood stove and benches around a pretty big established fire ring. Another wood, another canvas tent for a kitchen, and then another one for a shower. Um, the shower is the sort of like boiling. This is not boiling, but um, heated water over a over a gas stove that you pump, and then the water comes out of a little spigot. Um, 
it's, it's not bad at all. It's like it's a it's a nice it's a nice fire. And is and it just nice bare fire. nature? What do you mean? There's no no buildings, no roads. There are a lot of dirt roads because um, our property is on a ranch that used to be a Girl Scout camp. So there's there's roads that go through. Um, but they don't strike you as roads. They're just kind of like a path, a wide pathway. Cause it's all just the same soil that is everything else around it. Anyway, so another thing we do at base camp is the pack out, where each student gets one stuff sack, probably like a 10 liter stuff sack, um, and then we plant. And then they get meals for each for each day, and then they'll get some snacks as well, and some maybe hot cocoa or other desserts. Um, and that is the only food that they eat, except on um, except on the Jewish holiday Shabbat, where we do a communal cooking. Um, where we make challah and salmon and some veggies and salad. Um, and then everyone eats from a communal pot there. But other than that, it's always individual cooking and there's no sharing. Which is both, I think, a hygiene thing and an enabling thing. If one student, let's say a student has a crush on another student, and they're allowed to just give them a, give them food, that's really going to like build that relationship in not a healthy way, in like a reliant way, where like, you need me. And we don't want that. We want them to all be self-reliant. Um, so other things that happen at base camp, um, we have growth, so let's see, going through the day, um, so you actually have two different schedules, there's a schedule for being out on the trail, and a schedule for being at base camp? Yeah, and at base camp, Thursday is the only day that we're at base camp that after breakfast there isn't like some immediacy, well, no, not, yeah. No, not even because we come back on Thursday afternoon. So on Friday, there's like a little bit of that, but Friday's a pretty hectic day with getting ready for Shabbat and then doing like a service project. Um, so there's always something going on right after breakfast. And and we'll do that, and then it might be chopping wood, it might be doing food pack out, um, it might be doing curriculum work, and then we'll have lunch. And the curriculum work is... Uh, I guess I would call it fairly progressive. Like, there's a lot of opportunity for them to um, for them to do things in an alternative way. If if the learning style that they have doesn't match up with having to write pen and paper, um, and there are assignments. There's five phases of the curriculum um, that all get sort of more and more focused on the inner self as it goes along, and. Um, there's a lot of writing that comes along with that. Writing to other people, writing about other people, writing about oneself, um, writing about one's plan for after the Bamid Bar, which happens pretty early, actually. Because that's the biggest thing that, that they need, is they need to know what they're doing once they leave. That helps them have, like, some, some future structure, you know? Yeah. Um... And then we'll have a growth group at some point in the day, and the growth group might be with a clinician, which would be um, maybe talking about something that he, like a, an idea that he has for how they can better themselves, or talk about something they're struggling with, or doing an activity where they are forced to be vulnerable, not forced to, but get to be vulnerable. Um, we have a musical growth group where we just do a lot of singing and playing guitar. Um, we have a growth group where we just make smart goals. Um, 
the acronym SMART, um, specific, measurable, achievable, reasonable, and time-bound. I think I got that right. Realistic and time-bound. Um, and then there's another growth group halfway through that week where they will um, debrief, basically, how did I do on this goal? Did I accomplish it? Where did I hit the mark? Where did I miss the mark? And I think that's really powerful because without the debrief, you can just keep making goals and keep making the same mistakes. Yeah. And the goal is for them to recognize the mistakes they're making. Not necessarily change them immediately, but recognize them so they have the tools to change them. And own it. Like, it's not where was the mark missed, it's where did I miss the mark. So, throughout their, their time with out there in the bush, uh-huh. what, um, what are some of the more significant moments that you've noticed like what 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 sorts of experiences have you have you seen bring about a lot of growth the most growth definitely happens when the student is bought into being there we've had some students who are really wanting to be there other students who it seems like they want to just leave every day really some students are they actually want to be there yes i mean they're all above 18 Ideally, every single one would um, would want to be there. But for the most part, the parents are signing them up for this? Um, the parents are really pushing them to do it and maybe making an ultimatum, like, if you don't do this, you're not going to live at our house with us. Okay, gotcha. And so, like, that's like, shit, like, I, I need a place to live, and I'm not working, so <laughs> I got to have a base. Um, and parents' home is the ideal base. Right. You don't have to pay rent. You have a good support system, maybe, ideally. Um, but then is, is there a goal among the students to actually, after this program and maybe moving forward, is to move out of their parents' house and live on their own? That's not a necessary goal to be living on their own. I think it's really important and I, I would recommend it in every situation, but um, that's not like a programmatic goal, that one gotcha. specifically. Okay, gotcha. Um, generally, the parents have that in mind, though, because they don't want their kid living at home with them. Right. You know, they're, they could be 24 years old. They they want them to be successful and be independent and not be reliant on them. Now, one thing you told me yesterday, which I found interesting, yeah. was that the parents are involved in this program, too. They're, they're doing work while yeah. their kids are on the land. They're reading Anatomy of Peace, same as the students. They're reading this book. Um, they're completing a Kavanaugh statement. Kavanaugh means... Um, like intention, um, and the Kavanaugh statement is sort of like really going back to the basis of what, how we got to where we are. And there's another statement as well that they make, and they both share these with their students. Wait, how we got to where we are? Yeah, how we as in me and my child, us, mom and dad, and the child got to... Um, got to this point that we needed to send them here. Gotcha. Because okay. almost, because every single student that I have seen come through, the parents are playing a big hand in the student um, really needing to be there. How do you, how do you mean? Um, well, the parent is the person who shapes the reality of the child from day one of their life. You know, like, you could be from a British family and all your friends could be American, 
you're still gonna have a British accent because he, that's just who has the most influence over you. Um, and so if the parents aren't doing a great job at showing the kids they love them or care about them or communicate well, it, it's almost always communication. The parents are communicating what they want and the child responds um, with yelling or with shutting down or with defiance by like saying like, screw you guys, I'm gonna go sell some drugs. I'm gonna go um, just like be smoking all the time and just like doing whatever I can to like piss you guys off kind of. Um, and that happens a lot with these kids. Um, They're acting out in rebellion against their parents for the most part. Um, it's hard for me to, to like say that for them that it's rebellion against their parents, but it is definitely rebellion against something. It's rebellion against being like against being afraid of authority and like caring about them. Most of these these kids do have a certain recklessness to them. Um, that like that sometimes I'm like, wow, that's 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 amazing how these guys are able to, these kids are able to like really not be affected by the consequence of something. Like that can be really powerful. That's a great way to fight oppression right there if you use it right. But they're not using it for for the best for the best intentions. So the parents are involved, yep. and they are really exploring the question of why, how did we get here? Yeah. You know, why am I, why are we in this situation now where I'm sending my, my child that needs to go to this wilderness therapy program? Yeah. And do a lot of them, do, are you able to interact with these Kavanaugh statements? Are you able to? The students ones, yes. The parents ones, no. Okay. Sometimes they'll read them aloud to us. The students will read their parents. Um, the student ones, though, we will always review before it gets sent out, and we'll challenge them on a lot of things. It's generally a matter of like, say more about this, dive deep into that, um, and are you sure you're addressing everything? And that's just left up. That's left up to your discretion. You as the the lead, uh, as a guide. I think it's the clinician that signs off, saying that this is good to go. Like fully, but yeah, we do sign off on it. Okay. Like, we're not the final say in terms of it getting sent to their parents, you know? And so, the same question that the parents are answering, how did we get here, the, the students are also answering that? Or striving to? Yes. Okay. Can you can you shed a little light on this? What kind of responses are, are you hearing? From their perspective, what, what are they expressing? Um... They're expressing a lot of responsibility. They're taking responsibility for their actions, saying like, I stole this money from you. Um, I hurt you in this way. I said this thing to you. So the questions are, to name a few, um, like what did, what, what hand did I play? How could I have done that differently? Um, who was involved? How were they affected? The questions are open-ended to not be specific about any one situation. 
and they often want to dodge the bullet a bit and just try to talk about one specific situation and be like, oh, no one else was involved and um, we'll almost always challenge them because they're not there to, to skimp on writing and save a page of writing. They're there to dive deep and nobody wants to dive deep in the moment. Everyone wants to take the easy way out but when you're pushed to do the right thing, you end up being really happy you did the right thing which is often um, going full send and just committing to doing something more than you might want to. Now, this raises another question for me because this is stepping into the, the therapy side of, um, right. of this This is not safety experience. structure or supervision. Right. So your, your skills, Seth, are I can take you out in the woods and I can take care of you. You know, that, that's like one of your skill sets. But another one of your skill sets is you have this really great social intelligence. Um, and I'd say that's what makes you probably great at your job. But um, is that for a, someone who is serving as a wilderness therapist, is that, that social intelligence, um, how much do you, is that relied upon versus like, you know, maybe your direct the directors would say, "All right, Seth, you're really just here to keep them safe and to just you know hold space, but you're not really here to try and hold a therapy session with them. That's for the clinicians. Is that a, is that something that you talk about with the directors? Or no, they wouldn't say that. Okay. Um, it is not our priority, and it's not a programmatic priority. So if there's a session going on and there's another student who is potentially self-harming, um, that session's over and you're going to take care of the person who's harming themselves because that's my job more than the therapy. What is taking care? What does that look like? Um, that's a hard thing to answer because it's so situational, um, but like as a wilderness first responder, it means giving proper medical care and making sure that their health is stable out in the field um, and they don't need any sort of evacuation. Prevention is numero uno for wilderness first responders. We don't want to have to respond. If we can not respond, then we end up saving a lot of stress and pain, time, and just energy. So like a foot check is a way to prevent. Uh, we don't want to get too much into wilderness medicine here. Yeah. Okay, so, so what are some of the other significant experiences that these students... Um, you know, like they have to graduate eventually. So, what are the, the significant milestones that they have to make in order to graduate? Um, so, there's like different sections within each phase. There's a primitive skill phase. There's a um, life planning and like strategy phase, like section. Um, there's a normal curriculum section, there's a parent curriculum section. So they can't move on to the next phase of curriculum unless their parents also do the work. Which is beautiful. Um, and I think I'm forgetting one. That's that's the most of what takes place within each phase. Are the students ever held back by their parents who aren't completing the tasks? No, maybe for a few days. It generally, well, yeah, I've seen it happen that, it's, that they're held back for a decent while actually because their parents haven't finished one of their statements and haven't sent it in yet. Or they weren't going to send it in, but I get revised. 
Do they ever see their parents throughout the time there? Once. They, there's a family weekend. Okay. Okay, so we've got these different phases. Primitive skills. Um, say them again. What are they? Primitive skills. Um, life plan strategies. Um, curriculum. Parent curriculum. And like and benchmarks is the other one. So okay. certain things that they have to. So like, that's the big thing that they finish. Okay. What is that? What do you mean? What What are What are the What are the benchmarks? Yeah. What are the benchmarks? What are the things they need to do in order to move on through these phases? Um, it's generally like the most significant part of the um, of the curriculum, but it might be. So you might be finishing that Kavanaugh statement, like that's a benchmark. Um, it might be getting out of the first phase where you're actually able to not be on watch. Um, Can I stop you? Because I, I want to yeah. understand these more. So what does a Kavanaugh statement sound like? Um, I, think, I think that I described it pretty well. From, from, um, the, kids, from the students' perspective? Yeah, the, from the student's perspective, it's it's those things I mentioned, those questions about um, what what did I do, who was affected, how were they affected. Oh, okay. I understood Kavanaugh's statement to be an intention setting. Um, well, there's like a, there's a Kavanaugh growth group, which is separate, and that's the setting the smart goal. Yeah, I guess I understood it wrong. Like, I pictured them making this over overarching intention. Um, but it, is it, like, weekly goals or daily goals? The Kavanaugh Growth Group is a weekly goal. Okay. And then there's the, the, the other growth group where they, um, where they go back and um, debrief it. Um, Yeah, actually, no, you're right. The The Kavanaugh statement is a little bit more of intention setting. Um, I'm mixing it up with one of the other... Um, there's just a lot of writing things in the curriculum. Um, I believe it's in the Kavanaugh statement that the questions are more like, um, while at the meat bar, I want to blank. Right, okay. Um, something I think I'll struggle with at the meat bar is blank. Okay. And so, yeah, I guess I was wondering what might be the blank for while I'm at Bamidbar. What, what, what's something that you've seen students put there? Uh, like, do my best. Okay. Um, so keeping it sort of vague. feedback. Okay. There might be specific things. Most of them don't have a lot of emotional immaturity. So the idea of giving themselves, like... Um, like that kind of feedback. I mean, like, yeah, something I want to work on while I'm here is like being able to accept feedback. That's like, that's a lot of depth that most most of them don't have to their like social awareness of themselves. Mm. Okay, so what are it's primitive skills? So what what's a benchmark for primitive skills? So benchmark and primitive skills are two separate two separate 
things. You can. I just don't. Want, I don't want it to be confusing. Okay. I get. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, uh, one of the primitive skill um, accomplishments. Accomplishments. Okay. In each task, let's say, is um, carving a spoon. They only eat with wooden spoons that they make, um, or chopsticks if they really don't want to make a spoon. But the idea is that they need to make a spoon, um, and they'll use a knife to do that. And, um, and a gouge to make the bowl of it and sandpaper. Yeah, and that's really interesting. Um, yeah, that's like, I made this thing and I, I, I'm going to use it. Yeah. I, I personally, having carved spoons before, I, I know that there's a, a therapeutic value to it. I yeah. think a lot of people maybe in the Western mainstream world of therapy and medicine would say, carve a spoon what, what's that going to do for someone yeah but uh, yeah I think that's interesting that you've made that part of the curriculum yeah yeah I mean you carve a spoon the spoon breaks it was too thin there's no one to point the finger at so much of what we're trying to do with them is get them to take ownership over what they've done yeah yeah it's so hard what other primitive skills do they engage with um, lighting a fire with a match, lighting a fire with a striker, like steel and flint, um, or steel and quartz is mainly what we have, because we have quartz all around our property. Um, and then making a bow drill set, <coughs> which I don't want to describe in too much detail because it might get confusing, but it's an ancient <coughs> technique for making a fire by spinning a piece of wood really fast, um, creating smoke, creating a coal um, from wood dust that you've sort of pumped out of um, of a little notch that you've carved into a piece of wood yeah. and then blowing that flame into life with some really fine um, tinder. Wow. Yeah, I've, I've uh, started a fire with the bow drill and I've seen students do it too. I'm just wondering what's that, what's that moment like when a student you're working with gets a, a fire by friction with a bow drill. I wish I could tell you. I haven't seen it happen yet. Wow. Okay. So that they don't need to accomplish these to, to graduate. Well, the curriculum is in flux right now. Meat Bar is such a young program that um, there's really, like, like everything that I'm saying could, could be necessarily, like, well, not everything, but a lot of things I'm saying might not be completely accurate by the time it's even published because things are just changing a lot right now. Uh-huh. Um, which is beautiful, like, just the way the students are engaging with, um, what, what they're working on and what they need to improve, so is the organization, like that, like, having that kind of energy from the top down, um, or from the bottom up, whichever we want to say, just through the, through the phases, through the levels of, um, command, just make for a much more, like, authentic feeling organization. Um, so, yeah, right now they don't actually need to make a coal and blow it into life. But they try. Um, in the previous way that it was set up, they didn't have to try necessarily. They have to make a bow drill set. Okay. And generally there's enough, um, I'll use the term sweat equity in there of, I spent the time looking for this, for this bow, this piece of wood that's with my arm length that's curved and sawing it and making a notch in it so that I can hold a string on it, 
making this baseboard, putting a notch in that, and getting, making the spindle and finding a rock and sort of like um, scraping out a, a hole in the rock that they're like, they want to, um, to accomplish, at least try to accomplish making a coal. Do they have, keep a knife on them while they're out with you? Or only when they're working on these projects? Um, we have knives, and then they can ask us for them, and the way that we give them to them is just by really intentionally like holding out our hand with our hand on the knife blade and passing them the handle, making eye contact and saying thank you. That's the transfer that happens. All right, so that's a, that's a bit of primitive skills. Um, yep. What uh, what about planning? Is, is that getting into what am I going to do after I graduate from this program? Yes. Okay. What does what that are, look like? What are my intentions for when I leave here? What tools do I need to get there? Um, what you know? What kind of applications do we need to write? Where where do I want to work? Um, part of the curriculum is, is like really nailing down a place they're going to work when they leave. So it's centered around employment, um, finding a job. No, because another big part of it is like, who will you hang out with? Will those people make you want to relapse into your previous ways? Um, how will you spend your free time? Will you, you know, like, because most of them spend their free time just smoking. I just want to address that real quick because you use the word relapse, but you're not actually working with students who are dealing with addiction, right? Correct. Relapse doesn't necessarily mean, from what I understand, relapse doesn't necessarily mean like a um, like a mental health illness has become like paramount in your life because your addiction is so great um, and you're relapsing back into drugs. It could be relapsing just back into previous behavior. Wow, okay. You know, that brings up a really, for me, that's, it brings up an interesting question um, because you use the word mental illness and are, are these students coming in with a diagnosis from a doctor of a certain mental illness? Most of them, yes. Most of them are coming in with a lot of medication Okay. for that thing. And... Um, Depression, anxiety... Um, just like lack of motivation, um, some insomnia, or I'm maybe insomnia is not the right word, but like sleeplessness. Do the meds, they're taking meds throughout their time out in the field? Yes, and we are um, supplying, we're, we're holding onto the medicine for them and they're taking the meds. So, you know, I have my personal opinions about certain meds, but what kind of effect do you, do you see these meds having, if any? Yeah, some of them, like you know, like ones like Xanax, it seems like have a really big impact on um, on their ability to like um, to just be like maybe emotionally present. It seems like it 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 it's, it brings them away from that a bit and makes it harder for them to like. They're just kind of a little bit like Ooh, ah. there's like this airiness about them. Is there any conversation around um, moving off of these meds? Um, 
it's not a conversation for us to initiate at all um, because that could create a dynamic where they feel judged by us and then we're the ones who are giving them the medicine. So, like, we don't want that. Right. Um, but sometimes students do do ask if they can be taken off their medicine and that's not something that I can just say, yep, you can stop taking it because that might have serious like mental health effects. Um, that's a conversation they have with the clinician? No, with their psychiatrist. So we have like a field phone they can call from and they'll set up an appointment and talk to them about what's going on. And based on that conversation, another conversation with the, um, with the clinician might happen to change their, their um, prescriptions. Is the phone call with the psychiatrist structured in or is that something that the students will ask to do? Uh, they have to ask. Okay. Yeah. Anything that requires emails or phones is going to be not a standard that happens. Okay. Except for, in a certain phase, um, having weekly calls with your parents, therapy sessions with, with family therapy sessions with a clinician. Have you seen any students come off their meds while on the trip, while out on the land? Um... No, nothing that has really been like, whoa, this, I, I really see the effect of this medicine. I haven't had that happen. Because we're really good about making sure we don't miss them. Okay. Yeah, that, that creates distrust. Yeah. Yeah, I guess what, what I'm getting at is like, do these meds hold, hold back the healing in a significant way? Or do they, maybe it's the opposite. Do they facilitate the healing? Or is it just like, not, not even, you just... You're just kind of dealing with the, the fact that these kids have to take meds, and you do the best you can. Um, I haven't seen any significant prescription changes happen while I've been there. Okay, but do you do you really feel like the meds actually do prevent some of the healing to take place? Mm. Me, like my, my opinion. Yeah. Um, I've heard a lot of great arguments from both sides. Like, my my argument for myself is definitely, like, get off all that stuff, find from within. Because I believe that almost in every way. Like, don't get a massage, just stretch. You know, like, don't don't get it from external. Find a way to come, make it come from inside, and that will be the best way of healing. Um, but I, I've really come to grips with that my way might not be right for other people. What have you heard on the other side of, of the argument? That, that the medicine is, is based off some really strong technology and really a lot of research and development and a lot of testing and that it is a tool that enables them to, to be successful. The main one I've heard that with is with ADHD and being able to focus. I'm saying like I, I need that to focus and um, without it I, I will struggle. And there's no reason for me to find that from within because it's just, it's not something that I'm possessing. Now, you actually can speak from that from a personal place because yeah. when you were, when you were younger, I don't yeah, know what senior, age. What? What is it? Senior year? Well, well, when I was, yeah, in like second or third grade, I started ADHD medication. I took it all the way until I was a senior in high school. Whoa. At that point, I said, I'm done with this. I'm sick of being a zombie. I want to be myself. Um, I don't need to rely on this. I'm done. And I never took it again. You felt like a zombie. Yeah. 
my emotions were definitely um, dumbed down. It's like in that way, I gotta wonder, you know, how much of their real true self is coming through. Right, right. But that's just for me to wonder to myself. Yeah. So Because if I start making statements to them about what I think and then sure. they believe it and yeah. then they yeah. start getting off the medication, it's not the time for them to do it. Yeah, that's not good. Wow, yeah. The challenge. Yeah. So alright, so we're actually getting into your story a little bit, going into the past now. Like you grew up in Sharon, Massachusetts, little mm-hmm. suburb of Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, we we know each other through summer camp. We met at summer camp years ago and just became soul brothers for life. Yaman. Yaman. But uh, yeah, what what's what has uh, cultivated in you this passion for for nature and and for healing? What are some of the moments in your life that have placed you where you are? Um, the town I grew up in had a lot of protected land that was forested, and I spent a lot of time there with my parents and my family's dog. Um, so I had this sort of like baseline of what what I felt beauty was, and I loved going there to Borderland and to running around with, with Lily. Um, Your pooch. Yeah, exactly. And then your parents encouraged that. Yeah, and it was like a family thing that we did. It was a way that we spent quality time together. And I think at a certain point, I felt like this isn't enough. I wanna, I wanna be out here for more than just a few hours. And that was probably, I think I started feeling that urge in high school. And then I, I don't really know how this came to be, but I started sleeping outside. My parents were all worried, like, oh, what's wrong with Seth? Why is he doing this? This isn't normal. Um, I just was so sick of being in my bed and actually a lot of people I've talked to have had the same experience as a teenager of not being able to sleep in their bed and moving the bed orientation around or flipping to the other side of the bed or trying a different bed or sleeping on the couch, sleeping on the floor. And for me, I just wanted to be outside. And I feel like this thing that I was never heard, never heard of people doing and wanted to try and I loved it. You'd sleep outside in the winter? No. I just had like an an LL Bean um, like slumber party sleeping bag, not like a fancy one, like a, you know. Yeah. Um, so mainly in this in the spring, summer, and fall. Never with snow on the ground. So, um, okay. So yeah, you 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 had this connection with the outdoors. And I recognized that I felt better sleeping outside under the stars than I did sleeping with the roof over my head. Yeah. There's a real aha moment there. And then, without any real um, impetus that I can see, I had that eureka moment of, oh my gosh, there's all this trash that we're creating. Where is it going? Oh my gosh, it's going to landfills. Landfills have limited space. I gotta do something. And that really propelled this like environmentalism in connection to the land, um, sense of my life that, that that just developed in that moment and really just just skyrocketed from there. Yeah, for for people who know me, they they might think that I'm like kind of 
crazy about waste and about uh, you know the the impacts of my my buying habits. A lot of that comes from you, Seth. Like when we reunited as counselors at camp. So we were campers together for four years, and then we went four years without seeing each other, yeah. and then we were counselors together for four years. Yeah, rule of fours. And during that time. Um, you know, even the first year that we reunited, you were talking to me about all these things about uh, the plastic packaging and about saving water um, and about valuing nature. So that was huge on my journey, like my appreciation for the natural worlds. Um, you, I think it was dormant in me. I yeah. think it's dormant in a lot of people, of course, because uh, it's just it's natural, I think. But you kind of awakened it. Yeah. So, I appreciate you saying that, Harry. Thank yeah. You. Yeah. So I'm wondering where where it came from for you, like, and and maybe it's just it is a dormant thing. Maybe it's an innate thing. Maybe it's just like something that's in all of us. We're born with it, and it, and it just takes a matter of accessing it. But like, what? And maybe it's not even a, a, a question you can answer. Can you ask it concretely. Let's yeah. Like where. Where did that come from? Why Why were you out in the woods instead of watching TV? It, it just came from that one moment, I think, that I recognized that I, I had to do something to protect the planet. No, even going back further. Why, oh, why okay. were you out in Borderlands oh, okay. instead of watching TV or playing video games? I was doing those things, too. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, my parents encouraged me. And there's this one moment in particular that, that comes to mind where... I think it was Saturday morning and the cartoon lineup was on, you know, Batman Recess, like the good stuff. Static Shock. Yeah, exactly. Um, and my dad was like, come on, Seth, let's go to Borderland. I was like, no, I'm watching Batman. And I really didn't want to go and I said it like three or four times and then finally I gave in. He kept, was persistent about it. Um, me and my dad and our dog, Lily, went to Borderland and Borderlands is, is a nature preserve. Is a nature preserve yeah. in our town, yeah. yeah. Um, it's actually where Shutter Island was filmed there. Um, and there's a big lake in the middle of the preserve, and the lake was totally frozen because it was winter, and I'd never been on a frozen lake before, I don't think. Or I'd never had this, I, I didn't expect to have this experience, and um, it was a really big surprise, and it was really exciting. And, I was just running around on the lake with my dad and dog and just having a really good time. Um, and that was the moment for me, like, wow, like, there is some power in this. Mm. This is something to be revered. And, um, and also at Borderland, I had this realization that, like, in a video game, you might feel like you're in this massive world, but then you get to a point where you just sort of start walking in place because you get to the invisible wall. Yeah. And when, you get, when you're a city... You also have fences and buildings that are non-visible walls, real walls. But in nature, there's never a wall. There might be a rock wall, but that is not something that, that's like, that is an obstacle, but it's not a end point. That is just like, that is a part of the landscape that presents a challenge. And the fact that it feels infinite, and that while Borderland itself might not be infinite, the fact that I can just keep walking, even off the trail, for however long I wanted, like that felt really cool to me. And that was something I wanted to like. I want to be. I want to be in that. You know, I work in this after-school program. Yeah. And 
the kids that I'm teaching, I'll often ask them, hey, tell me about your weekend. What was like the best part of your weekend? And a lot of times they'll say, oh, I, I, I played video games all day. Yeah. <laughs> what? And I've been, I've been trying to find like the right, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to express judgment. I don't want to say like, oh, come on, what kind of way is that to use your time? <laughs> Um, so I've been like very <coughs> gracefully trying to find ways to open that conversation up and, and, and yeah, I mean, I have an intention. I have this, this ultimate intention of like <laughs> trying to wake them up to see that, hey, playing video games all day may not be the, you know, the most fulfilling, uh, way to use your time. Um, so that's something I've been working on. I wonder what, what do you say to, to students or to kids? that find themselves, for lack of a better word, like addicted to video games? Well, for me, it's a lot easier to make the argument because I have them in this sort of um, it's a captive environment where they're not about to walk away. So even if they're like, I hate this, I'd rather play video games, I can really clearly explain the reasons that this is a beneficial environment. Um, and some of those reasons are that, that whatever you need to learn, the... Um, the forest or the, the desert, wherever you are in nature, has to offer you. If you are struggling with organization, it'll become really apparent when you, when it's raining and you don't have any materials, that organization is something you need to work on. And you're going to have to work on that right then and there. And like the lessons are just so apparent and they're so um, direct. Um, so that's not something that I really see you saying to you little kids, though, to have an influence on them. Um, I would just share anecdotes with all the students. Not, like, yeah, definitely waiting until after they talk. Don't say anything right in that moment. Just be like, wow, that sounds awesome. Ask them engaging questions. Relate to them about how you might have played video games. Because they want, everyone wants connection. That's yeah. all that we're here for. Yeah. Um, empathy. Um, so if you don't, if you start off saying like, oh, why did you do that? You could have been outside. You've already created a wall. Just like in the video games, you created this wall that they're not going to pass. Right. And you're not going to be able to connect to them. But if in that moment you're able to connect to them and then after that share some anecdotes about your experience either with them or with the whole group, you might be able to, to really have an influence on them. Like, for example, maybe share an anecdote about this, this trip to Colorado, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that's a, that's beautiful advice. Like, there's no no need to admonish or judge, um, but it's almost like leading by doing in a way. Yeah. By telling a story about how much fun I had out in the woods. Yeah, and building rapport. Yeah. Building rapport. So. This is a side note here. A funny thing about rapport is that it often gets filled in drips in terms of like the report points that you get. It's like, okay, this one little report point, and you have to build up a lot of report points in order to get to a place where they trust you and feel comfortable with you. And it often is lowered in dumps. It's not lowered in points, it's lowered in like these massive where everything gets dumped because of something that you did. And interesting thing about human nature it's something just like to consider you know spell that out a little bit more what do you mean the dumps metaphor um so let's say you need 800 points to 
and making it like a game. You need 800 points, report points to, um, to be able to relate to the student about, um, about something they're going through and be able to share with them your perspective and for them to really hear you. And then you say something and you have to go back on your word or you say something that you didn't mean or they interpret it wrong. You don't just lose one report point for that thing. You lose like 600 report points in that one moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the stakes are high when you're building rapport with someone that is vulnerable. Yeah, yeah with anybody. You'll, you might find that with friends, too. Yeah. We're, we're quick to, to lose trust and slow to gain it. Mm-hmm. So, something else that's coming up for me that I wanted to bring into this conversation was... It's the spiritual side of all this, because this is a program based in the Jewish faith. Yes. And you you grew up in this faith, this spiritual tradition. Um, so, gosh, yeah, what, what role does Judaism play mm, great question. in this therapy program? Nice. Um, well, we do Shabbat every week, and that consists of not using electricity, not, um, not changing the state of matter of anything. Um, uh, this, I'm not thinking I'm not going to go more into that specifically. Um, but we do a lot of praying and singing and resting on Shabbat. Now, a lot of kids I know have no connection to Judaism. Yeah. Where are these kids coming from? Are they like completely like, Oh my God. Yeah, I know. I learned this stuff as a kid. Judaism. Yep. I get it. I was just born into this. I had no choice. Yeah. Um, a significant number of them are actually coming from Orthodox families, and most of them have since... Orthodox is, is very religious. Yes, very observant. Um, most of them have moved away from that observance their family holds, so they know... Excuse me. They know all of the, um, all the observances and commandments, and they don't necessarily want to follow them. Um, but we often find that when when we really get into it with them and get into some of the the, the rituals and practices, um, they really engage and they want to be part of it because it's comfortable with them. Even if they don't relate to it and they don't anymore, like it feels like home, and they want to feel like they want to feel at home. Um, I guess because it's so the reason other things. Um, all the phases of the curriculum are Hebrew words. Um, we do Midot cards every day. Um, and I'm, I'm blanking on what Midot actually means. Um, but each card has has a character trait on it. I think that might be what Midot means. Um, it might be like gratitude, um, self-restraint, um, faith in God, and then we'll do these cards every day, and each person picks a card at random, and then we'll talk about how this card relates to them in their life. So that's like one really concrete way that we incorporate Judaism every day. Mm. And the beautiful thing is that whenever like a lot of wilderness therapy programs, um, in my opinion, have cultural appropriation um, in the basis of their program, where there's a lot of talk of um, of Native Americans and of like 
of, of their ways, and they don't actually see a strong Native American presence there. Um, hmm. Using terms like "we are a tribe" and saying "aho" at the end of um, at the end of statements, and those aren't things that 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 I can directly relate to. I think they're beautiful, and I I think they're like really special traditions. They're not my traditions. It's not it's not for me to be holding on to those and making that standard for these kids who have no connection to that. What um, what does make sense is taking a tradition that all of them have been born into and having that as the foundation. So at the end of, at the end of when we talk, we say dibarti, which means I've spoken, and then everyone responds shamati, I've, I've heard. challenging for me, I admit it, um, because I was born into the Jewish faith, and, and yet I don't, I don't connect with it as much as, say, practices from other spiritual traditions like yoga or meditation. Um, I will say, just the other night, when we were standing under the moon, oh, yeah. and uh, I remembered, hey, Shabbat just ended, yep. Sabbath just ended this is what our ancestors would call Havdalah this time and uh, we broke out into song we sang yeah. a song from camp um, Eliyahu Hanavi Eliyahu Hatishbi Eliyahu 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 Agiladi and while we were standing there under the moonlight yeah. holding each other singing that <laughs> I really I felt like our ancestors were just smiling upon us just so proud of us so happy and also I, I felt connected to them because my grandparents and my great-grandparents and my great-great-grandparents and, and our our ancestors they did that it, they're, they're, I felt the power of tradition I really felt it and um, and I can see the importance in that um, so maybe it's a call for me just personally to connect more with that uh, that heritage yeah um, but you, you've actually always been more observant than I have been mm -hmm. um, so what what role has Judaism played in your your growth in your life well doing a mikvah every week has been really important to me and that's a ritual intention setting um, and a cleansing of the past that I do right before Shabbat on Friday um, where no matter the, the weather, the, the season, I'll, I'll get in the water and find a spot that I can submerge completely. And before the first dunk, I'll say something I want to say goodbye to, something that I've been doing the last week that I want to stop doing. I'll dunk, come back up, um, catch my breath if I need to, and then say something that I want to welcome for this next week, something that I want to start doing. A third silent dunk to sort of solidify that, and then I think about those things all week. And you know, my intentions for this week, I said goodbye to anxiety. 
and I welcomed gratitude. And I'm still working on both those things. Yeah, for sure. What else? What else? What other elements of your life have oh. been inspired by Judaism? I I say I'm a blessing over all the food that I eat, which I started doing with my sister becoming more orthodox. She kind of pushed me to want to do it, and then I read The Hidden Messages in Water and was like, wow, there's some real truth to this. This is something that I want to, like, I want to really feel as I say it. Because when I, when I, like, bless something and um, I put, I, I share, like, love with it, I'm actually... I believe helping to create some more like stable bonds and water and um, actually more health for myself. Um, I also generally keep Shabbat, um, which feels important to me in terms of just unplugging um, and not not being quite so focused on on the things that that I do during the rest of the week, and it, it, it serves like a really clear, like okay, this is my this is my bookmark for the rest of the week. It's easier to focus on my intentions if I'm keeping Shabbat because I'm just doing less things. Now, does I guess I, I'm curious about your own uh, experience of this, and also how it fits into the wilderness therapy program <clears throat> but how does God fit into it mm. is there talk of God um, for me there is yes I believe for a while I wasn't really sure where I stood because Judaism was just something that I was being told to do and I didn't really connect to it, obviously, because there's no rapport there. Um, and one sec. Um, and then I had this experience watching a really incredible sunset in Connecticut while I was doing a farming apprenticeship. Um, that I realized that God is in everything. Like God is in these beautiful rolling hills with all these trees on it, and this lush forest. And then God is also in this ugly stop sign that is kind of impeding my view of the sunset. And there's beauty in both of those things. There has to be that duality. And that was how I found... What duality is that? The duality of, of, um, of finding the beauty in both sides. Uh-huh. And not seeing one thing as beauty and one thing as ugly. Right, right. So then, does the G word come up while you're out on the land? And with these students, yeah. Well, when I when I bless the food that I eat, I I I do use God's name as in the form of Adonai, um, Melech Haolam, the the King of the Universe. Um, I'll also share gratitude with God, things that I'm grateful for, because um, He's sort of what I see as the source of those things. And the when you say He, is that is that uh, God? Yeah. Yeah. I see God as a male. Really? I guess. Yeah. I don't usually say he. So it's interesting that I said that. But I guess some part of me does believe that. Hmm. 
I find that when you get down to the base of it, a lot of a lot of a lot of the religions pretty much share these common core values. Mm-hmm. And they're expressed in different ways. Um, what do you see those as? Expressing gratitude. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Setting intentions. Uh huh. Taking care of one another and the earth. Uh huh. Um, and having a connection to to God, and from what you said, God is everything. So having having a connection with everything finding the connection with that stop sign and having a connection with the sunset and yeah that that's a spiritual experience yeah and I, and I I believe it's it's a big part of healing for anyone whether you are enrolled in a wilderness therapy program because you're dealing with some some pretty tough challenges in your life or you're enrolled in a program like the one you're, you're going to in New Hampshire where we have these seemingly very level-headed uh, um, mature well-behaved individuals right. um, there's still you know the spiritual experience it is it's powerful and and I'm fascinated by how returning to nature and being out on the land can uh, can cultivate and foster some sort of spiritual connection. And you said to me by the fire the other night that you are you're really just there as a, a co. I want to get the words right, but the bush is the main teacher. Yeah, the healing coming the from from the land. You're the assistant guide. And <clears throat> that brings up a question for me, which is, what are the, the um, what, what, why do Judaism and wilderness go together? What's that connection? I think this might be my last question. I'm getting, getting tired here. And we're at the airport. Yeah. Um, how does Judaism connect with, with wilderness? You know, I, I don't know if I like the words of that question. Let me, let me put it to this way. Since our conversation is closing, yeah. I'd just like to offer it to you to make any closing remarks. <laughs> Anything you want to say? Um, I'll, I'll answer your question a little bit, even if you don't like it. <laughs> it's already out there. Okay. Um... I think that there's a lot of singing in Judaism, and I know that both of us have experienced the power of song in natural places, and the, the way that it sounds when you're in the trees and under the moon, um, and how spiritual of a place that can bring you to. And we do a lot of singing at Bamid Bar. Um, we sing every day, and we have a growth group that all we do is sing. Um, so that's one way that I think Judaism really does help to connect these kids to the land. What is the power of song? You can't help yourself, can you? Um, I don't know, Harry. That's a big question. 
That's a great question to think about. What is the power of song? For me, I can answer. I can't answer in general. For me, the power of song is an expression of myself as identity, expression of myself um, theatrically, um, expression of myself energetically. It's an expression. Really plain and simple for me as an expression. Um, and it's a it's a way for me to I uh, connect to spirituality. May I may I ask of you that we close this conversation with the song? Yeah. Do you have one that comes up for you? Yeah, I do. Let's hear it. Think about a bunch of songs. Oh, wind, carry us now like milkweed, silk, and send us out. Oh, send us out. Oh, wind, carry us now like milkweed, silk, and send us out. Oh, send us out. One more time. Oh, wind, carry us now like milkweed, silk, and send us out. Oh, send us out. Peace. We had quite a day today. We really had quite a day. Howling. Howling at the moon. Palm singing. You know where we put our hands? Pondaland. Pondaland. We put our hand Pondaland. You know what the moon is? Moon on high. Moon's on high. Moon on real high. So we should just, is no good. Should is no good. Stability break. Ooh. Gratitude break. Ooh, and silence break. Silence break. That was a nice uh, silence break. <sighs> How about a how about a uh, how about a gratitude break? Quick little gratitude break, Seth. What do you say? Five a piece. I'll do four. Okay, why not? Why not five? All right, I'll do five. You just don't like the odd numbers. <laughs> no. You feel uncomfortable. Oh, maybe, maybe, maybe I'd rather just focus on less things to be grateful for. It's hard. Put my, put my. You know, it's like. Uh, it's like learning. Learning a, learning a bunch of songs. Say so you gotta learn a bunch of songs. You can learn them all decently, or you can focus on one or two and learn them really, really well. So it's similar with uh, with the broad generalist or a specialist. Oh, there you go. Broad generalist or a specialist. Yeah, you know both of those are. The world needs both. <laughs> mm-hmm. Why not? Why not know a little bit about a lot? That's how I've been most of my life like to start specializing though it's like a natural natural progression ready to dive deep into something that fuels me fulfills my soul I'm really grateful for this cookie it's got a lot of almonds in it and chocolate nice from Whole Foods hey little product placement (laughs) 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 thank you Whole Foods love the cookie bar more like you're welcome Whole Foods advertising for you yeah 
No, just kidding. You know, Whole Foods, they got good food. I wish they weren't such a massive corporation. I don't... Why, Harry? Why do you wish they weren't such a massive corporation? Yeah, what's wrong with that? I just have this feeling like the bigger that an organization gets, uh, at least in this capitalist system, Mm -hmm. it's like very hard for them not to just start prioritizing profits over people and planning. Well said. But not all corporations do that. We got some B corporations out there. And I don't I don't know. Maybe it's another marketing ploy. But maybe it's real. Maybe these corporations are like, yeah, we got we got rich because we figured, hey, that's we know how to we know how to get rich. So let's get rich and then use our wealth to have a positive impact. Yeah. Not sure the percentage. The percentage, the numbers, the statistics. Yeah. The stats. Give me the stats. What kind of impact are these players having? <laughs> <laughs> Good refrain there. Refrain? Yeah. Thanks. Ah, oh, Seth is warming his feet by the fire right now. Barefooted on the snow. Barefooted on the snow. A little, little, uh, mm. description, description. No, not description. Seth. Paint the picture. Paint the picture. Seth, can you paint a picture of ours? Our space right now, our surroundings. So we got west out in front of us, east behind us, naturally. And there you can figure out where north and south are. <laughs> um, so to our north, we Excuse actually me. have Value Hot Springs. Wow, okay, you're gonna spell it out like that. Yep, a lot of product placement from somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's cool. Well, yeah, just just respect it. Respect the Valley View. Go ahead, see. Go ahead. And then way further to our south, we have my home. Um, and then we have what? My home. South. Oh, north. Yeah. South. Yeah. North of here is your is your home in Frisco. Yes. Uh huh. And north of us is Frisco, Colorado. Yes. Colorado. And uh, for east, we got a burly set of mountains. One of which is nearly fourteen thousand. It's thirteen thirteen five five eight. Wow! And that's to our east. That's behind us. Yes. The the mountains we were gazing upon. Yeah, and from from where Harry and I stood, we could see like six or seven saddles and ridges. We were standing up on high, up on a hill. Yeah. Big hill. Lots of scattered trees, and then a big snow field. Yeah, big snow field. And then we had greetings to our north from deer. Yeah, we had deer to the north. Greeting to the south from horses. Oh, yeah. And from up above and to our southwest, we had... Um, was that a golden eagle? Maybe a golden eagle, yeah. Yeah. That was maybe the same one that visited us in the car right here. Maybe. Maybe. That one flew right in front of us said, welcome, welcome to this land. And uh, I guess she just came to check on us. Yeah, she came... A times throughout the day. Yeah. Do you remember the second encounter we had with her? Second encounter. It was very soon after the first. 
Uh, it was a lot more visceral. Tell me about it. Remind me. Um, there were white quadrupeds. Oh, yeah. Another animal greeting to this land. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know you're in the right spot when animals start greeting you. Two massive, <laughs> massive white dogs just what? hopped right into the car pretty yeah, much. What, were those St. Bernard's? Yeah, they were beautiful, <laughs> very <laughs> warm dogs. Oh my god, I, I feel like we actually met them last time we were here. Really? Valley View, I, I remember those dogs. They, they were actually really powerful spirits. Oh, I don't remember that. I hope we get to interact with them on the way out. I didn't really take it in when they came to the car. I'd just woken up from a nap. <laughs> and I was kind of focused on getting here. Right. I forgot, whoa, we got these powerful animal spirits right now. Ready to give us love, share love, receive love. Mm. <laughs> oh. Boy, you crazy. Boy, you crazy. What made you say that? Because all the sounds I'm making... Sounds you're making plus all the the ranting. Yeah, I hope it's positive ranting. It is. Cool.